Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kim, and we're going to be reading Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26, through chapter 2, verse 3. Go ahead and follow along with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of, of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food." And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that even though we may have heard this passage many times before, that you can give us new eyes, that you can open our ears to hear something new, to hear what it is that you want us to hear. Father, thank you that you can change our hearts. Thank you that you have the power uh, to give us something to walk away with today, Father, that you can minister to our hearts and our souls. And so we ask that you would do that. Father, we ask that you would give Joel words of wisdom to speak, um, open our ears to hear what he has to say. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much, Kim. I appreciate that. We are, as a community, going to begin a new series this morning uh, entitled United Together in Christ. And over the next 12 weeks, our hope 
is to work through the question of how do I know what my life is all about and how does that come to bear on the decisions that I'm making? Now, those are huge questions, and so we can't do it all in one week, but over the next 12 weeks, what we hope to look at together is to walk through Scripture's answer for what it means for us to be united together as a community through faith in Jesus. How does that reshape us? How does that make us alive? How does that give us energy and a vitality to go out into the world in the face of evil and darkness? Scripture has an answer to that. Scripture points us to Jesus himself and our union together with him. And so we'll kick off this series this morning uh, in Genesis 1 and looking at uh, the purpose of life. We, friends, are created for a purpose. Uh, In the 1950s, a gentleman by the name of Marvin Minsky, who went on to work at MIT as a professor, among other things, but he was an intern at Bell Laboratories. And at the time, Bell Laboratories was kind of the epicenter of all of this fantastic engineering and all these amazing things. The government was pouring money into it saying, "Uh, do big things, use technology and make big stuff. So it was this engineering hotspot. And Marvin described his uh, internship there to a woman named Abigail Pesta uh, for an article in the Wall Street Journal some years ago. And in the article, he described his instructions when he showed up to work. They told him, work on big stuff, and we're talking about stuff that's going to last and go through the next 30 years. No small stuff, only big stuff. That was his instructions as an intern. So uh, being the intern that he is, having the energy and the vitality, he goes after it. And the first thing that he creates is uh, a machine that uh, tests the force of gravity, and it's connected to a bell. And if uh, gravity changes at all, the bell goes off. Uh, As an 85-year-old, Marvin, looking back on this time, said, the bell never rang. Because gravity is pretty constant. And so that was his first creation, but he had this long view. Hey, if gravity changes, that's going to be a huge deal here on Earth. So that was machine number one. His second creation, so the other big product, is a machine that had an on switch. And when you flipped the on switch, a box would open up and a lever would come out and it would flick the on switch back to the off and the lever would retract and the box would close. It was a machine that when you turned it on, the machine's function was to rise up and turn itself off. And so you could flip it on, and the lever would come out, and we'd flip it off. And you'd say, huh. And he'd flip it on, and it repeat ad nauseum. And when he created this, he thought this would be amazing. His name for it as an intern was the ultimate machine. Little did he know, unlike his gravity bell thing, which didn't work out, that ultimate machine would take on a different name. It would be called the useless machine, and it would last 30 years or longer. In fact, if you go YouTube search later after the service, not right now, put in useless machine, drop it in your YouTube search, you're going to see people doing all sorts of fancy things to create a machine that effectively, when you turn it on, it turns itself off. 
So here's Marvin Minsky, the bright-eyed intern at Bell Laboratories, thinking, I'm going to do huge things. And he does. But his ultimate machine turned out to be a useless machine. If we, I think, are honest in the weeks ahead, we may be able to relate to a bright-eyed Marvin Minsky. We often have dreams, we have passions, we begin to pursue them. We go out to create an ultimate machine, something that will last, something that will make a dent. And for some of us, uh, we, we grow weary. We just give up. We decide we'll do something else. For others of us, and this may even be the harder option, we achieve our goals. We do what we think is great things. We put in the work and effort year over year over year over year to build what we think is going to be the ultimate machine. And when we arrive, it turns out to be more useless than ultimate. We're left with the question of whether we have given up whether we wonder about the value of what it is that we do. What is my purpose here? The Bible opens in the first chapter with an answer to that question. The Bible in chapter 1 opens with the claim that God, the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, has made all that you can see and all that you know, and that he made it good. And so when we think about our place in the world, our purpose in the world, Genesis 1 comes to bear to set the table for how we should think about that. It delivers the answers to our questions, or at least some of them. And so we'll look at Genesis 1, or a portion of the creation account. And we're going to do it in three points this morning. Place of humanity, purpose of humanity, and promise to humanity. So in Genesis 1, 1 and following, uh, the context here is God's good creation. Uh, it is an account of God creating the world, uh, and he's doing it in an orderly way. Day over day, he's putting in new parts, and as his creative work unfolds, uh, he arrives in, in verse 26 to the sixth day. And on the sixth day, and this is in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And that concludes... God's creational work on the sixth day. God looks out over it, and instead of just saying it's good, he says it's very good. And then into the seventh day, and God rests, which is the opening verses of chapter 2. 
So Old Testament scholars who look at this deeply at the Hebrew, they would say that the clustering of creation that you see in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. That there is this focus on humankind. That creation has been walking through this very structured pattern. God has been surveying it and saying it's good. And on the sixth day, when it comes to humanity, when it comes to human beings, God adds an emphasis to this part of creation. Uh, The way that the language is used to talk about God's word, it gets more intensive. And when God surveys it, he says it's very good. And then he rests. Old Testament scholars would tell you that this is because the place of humanity in God's creation is at the height of it. It is the capstone. It is the crowning moment. Humans, women, and men are created in ways that no other part of creation are made. And this account in Genesis is trying to signal you to that reality. You, if you're human, are distinct. You are different from the rest of creation. Mike Sherritt, who is a pastor and a friend of mine, wrote a book called Watching Over the Heart. And in the book, he uses an illustration of this reality. He says, uh, and this is a quote from his book, It's as if you brought everything you value and you placed it on the floor in front of you. So you could imagine uh, all the things that you treasure or you think are important in your life, your keys, uh, your passport, your phone, uh, your laptop, uh, documentation, whatever, right? And, And you set it all in front of you. And then your child comes in and sits down in the middle of all of that stuff. And Mike, in his book, writes, As good and as beautiful and as costly and significant as all that other stuff may be, there's no comparison between those things and your own offspring. That is what Genesis 1 is communicating to us in the 21st century. That uh, in the opening of Genesis, God creates the sun and moon, earth and water, creatures in the water, on land and in the air, vegetation of all types. And he sees that those things are good and beautiful and significant. But on the sixth day, he creates humanity and puts us in a place where for all the beauty and value of all those other things, they don't compare to God's image bearers, to those who he has created in his own image. And and I think if you fast forward from that creation account to today, there's at least a few takeaways from recognizing how the Bible values humanity. The first is that for Christians, for people who value Scripture and we say, yes, this has something to say for our lives, and I think it does and it should, that means we should be at the forefront when it comes to human rights. When it comes to watching out for the dignity and care for others, whether we're related to them or not, if they're human, we should recognize there's value there. Any impulse that we may have whether in jokes or in offhanded comments, or when we see 
dehumanizing things going on across the world, we can't just turn away and say, well, that doesn't matter. At least if we take serious how God has created his image bearers, the bearers of his image. And so that is the place of humanity in God's creation. Now, in this account, God gives them not just a place at the height of creation and not just saying it's now very good and not just saying I'm going to rest from my work, but he gives a sense of purpose to what humanity should do in this world that God has created. And we're going to look at that maybe in kind of three subpoints. So image, be fruitful and multiply, and have dominion over. So first, he says, let us make man, in verse 26, in our image and after our likeness. And uh, the word image uh, that is used here, it's not all that frequently used in the Old Testament. Um, in the ancient Near Eastern world, this idea of an image could go a few different ways. One was that kings who had these vast kingdoms, when they wanted to send a signal to everyone around, they, they can't be every place at once in their big kingdoms, right? And so if they wanted to send a signal to people, hey, this is mine, and don't forget when you mess with this stuff, you're messing with me, they would set up a selim, the Hebrew word for image. They would set up an image there on the edge of their kingdom as a signal to anyone else, hey, this is mine, and don't forget it. And so in that way, in the ancient Near Eastern world, this word would be used to represent uh, kings. In addition, it was used in other parts of Scripture to uh, represent idols, things that people would worship other than God. I think the takeaway here is that when God creates humanity— my understanding of what's going on when he says, I want to make them in my image and in our likeness, God is declaring to the heavenly court that humanity is going to, in a sense, at its best, represent God's reign and rule on earth. So in the beginning, when all is good, humanity is created and placed in a spot to represent God, in a sense, to be his vice regents, to uh, serve as uh, his image bearers on earth and to represent his calling and work. He goes on in verse 28, and he blesses them, right? And in the language of Scripture, it's not just flippant like uh, someone sneezes and then you say, Right, that's like flipping, right? Like, hey, yeah, hope you're okay there. Uh, please keep your social distance mask on, right? That's, that's kind of how we approach this blessing language. Now, uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world, to bless somebody was a huge deal. Uh, it was uh, a way to uh, pronounce good over them. And so in verse 28, God blesses them. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. There is this sense that humanity is commanded as image bearers to fill the earth. And... Uh, in this context, that would mean make families, 
have kids, make new families, repeat, and fill the earth. And that collectively together, you would function as image bearers having dominion over the earth and all that's in it. Now, I think it's important before we go too far here that this have dominion is not um, a despotic way of, uh, it doesn't mean you can do whatever you want because you're in charge. The idea here is to maybe exercise authority in a way that reflects the goodness of God. Now, I know that it's hard for us in the 21st century to think of dominion in a positive way because we can cite through history here in America and then certainly in world history so many times of how dominion has gone wrong. We're going to talk about how it's gone wrong in a second. But just here, I want to note, before sin has entered into the world, humanity is created as God's image bearers, is given the responsibility to grow as families and as community. So the vision is not one of individuals in isolation, but as a community. And they are charged to exercise faithful authority as an extension of God's reign, to pursue good and to care for the world around them. And so to the extent that we've seen dominion go wrong, to the extent that we've seen abuse of people through systems and individuals within systems, that is not a reflection of what God has called us to. That's quite the opposite. One thing I want to note here is this command to be fruitful. Part of why I'm me personally, you may not be, and that's okay, but I'm just talking about me for a second. Part of why I'm Presbyterian is because I think children, all of you kids who are here, I think you're incredibly important. You're not just some add-on. You're not just some tag-along. You are part of God's command to humanity. And so there can be a default mode of thinking in certain cultures that children are a distraction to one's freedom or to one's own passions. To talk about kids is something to be tolerated. But this picture here in Genesis 1 is that children of all ages are a part of God's work. They're a part of the community. And so that, I think, challenges us today to push against this idea that kids are an inconvenience, something to merely be tolerated. Uh, How do we do that as a church? Well, there are lots of ways you can do that. If you fly on a plane with kids and somebody next to you is crying, you cannot send dirty looks, right? You can say, hey, 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 that's a kid. That's, That's, it's okay. In church, When we hear kids cry out during a time of prayer or singing or any part, you could say, you can in your head do the quick translation and say, hey, that's part of God's people participating in God's community. This is good. Now, I know that that wasn't my first impulse, particularly when I was single. Uh, My first impulse when I was single is to wonder why people just can't control their kids. That may be a fair single-person question. I'm here to tell you, adjust it. Adjust it to recognize that for all of us as a community, when kids are part of our work, they're not an inconvenience. They are a part of what we do, and they're valuable. They're part of God's plan and his call on humanity. 
and they're valuable. And so not only do we not merely tolerate them, we have to look for ways to engage them and include them and incorporate what we do to protect them, particularly at their youngest and most vulnerable. A quick note to parents who have stayed at home at some point for the sake of having kids and raising kids. If you have stepped off a career or education track for the sake of kids, you are participating in one of the God-given purposes for humanity. But I know at parties or at gatherings, it doesn't always feel that way. Hear from Genesis 1 that what you've done or what you are doing is good. If you're here today and you're struggling to participate in that part of blessing from God in Genesis 1, that is, if you're married and you have longed to have kids and you can't have them, you wrestle with the reality of infertility, I don't want the shame of that to sit on you or for you to feel shame for our community. We have to walk as a community this line where we can talk positively about the value of kids in a way that doesn't translate to any single person, hurry, or any married couple, hurry up and have kids. That's not what I'm saying, and I don't think that's what Scripture's saying. And so we have to walk this nuanced line of saying, as a church, kids have an incredibly valuable part of our purpose, but they're not the exclusive or be-all purpose either. And I think we can do that, but we just have to have that conversation out loud and recognize that there's not just one route to participating in God's work. Here, in Genesis 1, being fruitful and multiplying is part of it. Now, we've talked about the place of humanity, the purpose of humanity, the promise to humanity. Uh, there is a game that I learned over the holidays with family. It's a really fun game. It's kind of like the telephone game, uh, but it also involves like Pictionary. And uh, so how this works is like someone gives you a picture and you have to guess what you think that is in a phrase. And then you write the phrase down and you pass the phrase to the person next to you. Then that person has to draw what they see on the phrase. And then you repeat and you go around a big table. It is a lot of fun. But man, do those images and phrases get messed up when you look at the first uh, iteration of it. And then particularly if you have a big group, when you look at the last one, it just takes one miscalculation, one misunderstanding to take what is this beautiful, well done, thoughtful picture and turning it into something really different, uh, marring it. That then as it goes down the line, it can never really get back to its original glory. Well, in the next chapter after this creation count, here things are very good. But soon, Adam makes a decision to introduce sin into the world. Adam steps into this spiritual telephone and Pictionary game and mars the picture through his decision-making to do what God has commanded him not to. And there are downstream effects to that where you can't get back to the original picture or vision of what God has commanded because Adam has marred it, not just for himself and not just for Eve, but for all of humanity. 
And so when we think about uh, whether it's the difficulty in having children or navigating relationships, so the difficulty when it comes to being fruitful or multiplying, when we think about the challenges of exercising dominion in faithful and non-abusive ways, those realities exist with us and we have to push against them because Adam messed up the picture that has been drawn for us of what it looks like to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. And so what happens is now you fast forward through generations and time across cultures and uh, the human telephone pictionary game. Did y'all hear that? That's part of our community celebrating and participating in the life of our church. So this happens uh, to us and then when we are working through relationships or when we're trying to participate in our place or purpose given to us as humanity, we experience frustration. We fight against evil. We deal with our own anger and inability to accomplish what we think should happen or what we see makes sense. We have to live and fight against an overwhelming sense of loss and isolation, particularly right now. Things that should go one way by design, they don't. Things fall apart. And the result of this is because of the marring of creation. We experience this day in and day out. Because of Adam's decision and the subsequent marring effects, we haven't lost the image altogether. So it's not that we can trash the human rights part now because we're like, well, it's marred, so we can do whatever we want. No, uh, the image of God still exists with humans, and the calling is still there. We just find ourselves frustrated and angry and incapable at living it out individually or as a community. And so we need help. We can't do it by ourselves. It frustrates our purpose. It begins to feel like everything that we think will be the ultimate machine or the ultimate product or the ultimate relationship starts leaning way too much toward the useless. Here is the good news, friends, of how the story continues to unfold. That frustration continued past Adam and Eve. It continued with Abram and with David and with the people of Israel. And it continued until God himself, the father, called to his son and called him to enter into the world, to take on humanity, to come as the New Testament would describe him as the second Adam, the second one who would make right all of the marred pictures that had been drawn up to that point. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, enters into the world, taking on the frustration, the sin, the anger, taking it on himself, and delivering his people from that marred image into this renewed, new creation. That is the Christian hope. 
that while we do confess our sin week in and week out, as Adam said, we haven't lost the image of God. And quite the opposite, because of the work of Jesus entering into our world, we have hope of faithfully bearing God's image, of being fruitful and multiplying and working to do good in our world. So that at times when it may feel like we lack purpose or our purpose is unclear or uncertain, the resurrected Jesus meets us in those moments and he invites us to himself. He says, come to me through faith and I will make you a new creation. I will take away the ways in which you have been marred and I will make you new. I will take your anger and bring you peace. I will take on your isolation and bring you into communion and community. I will take your wandering and deliver to you purpose. I will take what feels like uselessness and make you ultimate. That is what it means to live as a Christian, not to clean ourselves up and make ourselves good, but to fall at the feet of Jesus in faith, to be united to him and for him to transform us from the inside out. It is Jesus who provides us with this God-honoring direction for our purposes as well as redemption, deliverance for the ways in which uh, that picture or that story or the phrase has been marred. What has been marred is being restored in Jesus Christ and our union to him. And in the weeks ahead, we hope to talk about not only the aspects of the way that works out in our lives spiritually, but to also work through how that actually changes how we live in community, how we can now truly fulfill the commands of God to go out into the world as his faithful image bearers. Let's do that together in the Sundays ahead. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, I ask that you will watch over and care for us this morning. And as we continue to sing and pray and celebrate at your table, that you will meet us in our frustration, our anger, our isolation. That you will give us hope and lift our faces to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.